You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Jesus, we thank you that we can gather in your house this morning. We thank you that uh, you are here with us. And um, that's not only something we give as Thanksgiving, but something we uh, just also ask, God, that we could be aware of your presence here, that we could be aware of you moving about us and speaking to us. And so in this time right now, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us and show us your love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can grab a seat. So I don't know about you, but in the Gregory household, we are deep into the Christmas movies. We have been watching all kinds of Christmas, the cartoon ones for kids, the, uh, the grown-up ones, the black and white ones. We're watching all kinds of Christmas movies. And one thing I like to do when I watch different Christmas movies is I like to watch the ways that Santa is often depicted in different Christmas movies. Because Sometimes he is like the jolly like fellow, right? Or sometimes he's a little bit aloof. Or there's even some Christmas movies where Santa is like grumpy and gruff and impatient. I think though of all the depictions of Santa in different Christmas movies, my favorite comes from the Chronicles of Narnia. And maybe not even so much the book the, the, or the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I really like the showing of Santa, which he is, spoiler for some of you who haven't read it, of Santa in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which if you're not aware, it was a book series written by C.S. Lewis, a really like amazing Christian author. And there's these kids, the Pevensey kids, that find their way into a magical world. They go through a wardrobe like you do, right? And they find themselves in a magical world. However, this magical world of Narnia is under a curse. And it's a terrible curse because in Narnia, it has been always winter and never Christmas. Can you imagine, right? Always cold, always dreary, but never the joy of Christmas. So the Pevensey kids come into Narnia and they find out that there's this white witch that has caused the curse and she starts chasing them. So they're running from the white witch. They end up hiding in a cave when they hear like the bells of a sleigh, thinking it's the witch behind them. And then there's a beaver with them, of course. And the beaver goes out and he looks and he says, it's okay because the beaver can talk, and his name is also Mr. Beaver. So just, you know all that, but he's telling the Pevensies as they're hiding, he's like, it's okay, you can come out of, from the cave. And they realize it's not the White Witch, instead it is Father Christmas, right? Because that's what the Brits call him, not Santa over there, but Father Christmas. And so Father Christmas has come, and here's how Lewis describes him in the book. He writes that he had a great white beard that fell like foamy water. And then the kids, when they saw him, saw that he was so big, so glad, so real, that they all became quite still. And they felt very glad, but also quite solemn. And then Father Christmas booms out to them. He says that the witch has kept me out for a long time, but I've got in at last. Aslan is on the move. So there's this backstory that I would love to hear about, right? Of like Santa, like trying to get in Narnia, but he can't, but then all of a sudden he can get in Narnia. Like I'd like to read that story, but he ends it with this right here saying, Aslan is on the move, which if you're familiar with the series, Aslan is the great lion, which is a representation of Jesus in these books. And there's a prophecy in, in Narnia that says this. It says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. 
There's this prophecy in these books, just like we have prophecy in our books. And in Narnia, it was this idea that when Aslan was on the move, winter would, would end, that spring would finally come, that the witch's curse would cease. And in our Bible, we have several prophecies also of the coming of Jesus. And in our Advent series, we're calling it Promises of a Savior because we're looking at all these Old Testament prophecies that then foretold the birth of Jesus, God's Son coming to us. And this week, as we focus on the theme of love, of course, last week we talked about hope, and this week we're focusing on love. As I was going through these Old Testament prophecies, trying to find the right one to talk about love, I was surprised to find that none of these prophecies, even though they refer to love, none of them directly use the word love except for one, except for one prophecy. And I tried and tried to not use this one weird prophecy in our sermon this morning. You might figure out why later on. I tried and tried not to use this prophecy, but I just kept coming back to this one prophecy. It's in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, we'll get there in a second. You can go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter two. But if you know your Christmas story, this is kind of the, the back half of the Christmas story. Really, it's well after Jesus was a baby. And so Jesus has been born in the manger. The, the shepherds have come and, and, and worshiped him. The, you know, all of that's gone on. Mary and Joseph had then taken him to the temple and sort of dedicated him at the temple. And then we don't know how much time passes. Some people think probably a few years but then there's these guys from the East that are called wise men or magi that have come seeking Jesus because they've studied the prophecies. They've even somehow studied the stars, which is confusing to me. I don't get it. But they've said, we've read that there's gonna be a king of the Jews to be born. And we saw his star in the sky. And so we've come here to find him and worship him. So they go to where you would go if you're gonna look for a king. They go to the palace but there's no new king there. Instead, they meet Herod, and Herod listens to their story, and Herod, being the current king, is threatened by the story of another king coming. And so Herod tries to get all the info he can from the wise men, and he's like, hey, when you find this king, you know, tell me so that I can go and worship him too. But then the wise men go, and Herod talks to his officials. He says, hey, there's supposed to be another king that's been born. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna have a mass execution of all the male children under the age of two in the area of Bethlehem, according to what these wise men told me, which is a very dark part of the Christmas story. It's not something you usually see like in the background of people's nativities, that like terrible horror going on there. But that's the darkness into which Jesus was born. That's the darkness of our world into which God had sent his light. And so the wise men, they go and they find the boy, Jesus. They find Mary and Joseph. And then it says this in Matthew 2, verse 13, if you've got your Bible. If not, it's on the screen. It says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And that's our prophecy, which is not usually a prophecy we really focus on at Christmas. It's not one that you're gonna like write in a Christmas card because there's kind of a lot of explaining to do to understand this particular prophecy. And it can be a little confusing, but I have found it to be so rich 
we read in this prophecy, it comes from, it comes from uh, Hosea, okay? So Hosea 11 is where this prophecy comes from. Hosea 11 verse one says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So Matthew has clipped that prophecy from Hosea and said, this is talking about Jesus and when he came back from Egypt, after Mary and Joseph had escaped to Egypt and then they come back from Egypt. And so there's a connection here between Jesus and Israel. And it says he is the child, Israel was a child, and he's saying Jesus is also a child, right? He's the child of God. So just like Israel was God's chosen child, his chosen people, Jesus is now God's chosen child, his son. But then he says, I loved him. That's our theme, right, of love. And so God loved Israel, but now he's saying God loves Jesus. And so we have Jesus who is the son of God and he is the loved son of God. That right there is a whole lot going on. But there's even more that's happening because as Matthew writes this and, and calls back to this prophecy, he's sort of given us like a link, like click on this and you'll go back to this area. He's linking to the story of Israel and their exodus from Egypt, Israel's flight from Egypt. He's showing how God in that story rescued Egypt. And now there's a new rescue happening. And if you remember the rescued Egypt, rescued Israel, you guys are with me, right? Like I may not be all there, you're there. We know from this story, or at least you guys, maybe I don't know, maybe you know, we know from this story that Israel was in slavery, right? We could go back to the book of Exodus in our Bible where Israel was in slavery to Egypt. And it was a hard time. This whole nation was being forced into manual labor. We're reading about the abuse of these people, how, how Moses like, saw like, the Israelites getting abused and Moses even killed a guy. He was so upset over this. And how in all of this, God came and rescued Israel. It had gotten so bad when Israel was in slavery that Egypt, as they looked and they said, man, this nation's getting too big. Like they could turn on us. Maybe they'll stop working for us. They'll revolt and turn on us. And so Egypt ordered the execution of the children of Israel. And we read about that in Moses's origin, right? Of how his mom had Moses as a baby. She's like, what do I do? They're trying to kill our children. And she hid Moses in that basket and sent him down the river. That's the darkness that Israel was in. That's the darkness of, of slavery that God entered into by sending Moses to then deliver Israel out of the slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh, just like Herod, was trying to kill the children of the Israelites. And so we see right there, God calls them. God calls them out of slavery. He sends Moses and he goes after Egypt with plague after plague after plague. God really shows himself as a fighter. He starts fighting for his child, Israel. And he rescues them out of slavery. He delivers them through the waters, right? As we remember that scene where they're crossing the sea, they have an army behind them and an ocean in front of them. And then God sends Moses to part the waters and they walk through on dry land. Then as their enemy comes after them, the waters smash down on Pharaoh's armies. God in this story is a rescuer. So when Matthew links to this, as he's talking about Jesus, he's reminding us, his readers, that God is on a great rescue mission. And we see in the Exodus, what I would call the second greatest rescue story of all time, because we know the first greatest rescue story of all time is Christmas. And so hearing of the rescue of Israel from Egypt, as Matthew calls back to this, and it reminds us that God is a rescuer. 
And we love a rescue story, don't we? I mean, we, we love, if you just looked through movies, like the amount of movies that are just about rescuing people, a majority of the Marvel, like the superhero movies, like we love to see Spider-Man swoop in and rescue somebody falling off, falling off a building, right? We like to see Prince Wesley go after Princess Buttercup and rescue her, right? We like to see, you know, uh, what's Bruce Willis rescue people from Nakatomi Plaza, right? Like we love a rescue story. We like to see Matt Damon rescued in Saving Private Ryan and Matt Damon rescued in The Martian and Matt Damon rescued in Interstellar. We like to see Matt Damon get rescued, but we love these rescue stories, don't we? We love it when somebody comes in and rescues somebody else. And I think the reason that we love these kind of stories is because we have this internal desire for rescue, because we know the world we live in is dark and we need a rescuer. And Matthew's telling a story and calls back to the second greatest rescue story to remind us we have a rescuer. And he kind of causes us to then compare ourselves to the Israelites in slavery in Egypt because we too are in slavery, maybe not to Pharaoh, but we're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to death. We're imprisoned by evil. We live in a world where maybe there aren't kings ordering the execution of babies, but we have dark things like abortion. We have sad things like school shootings. We live in a world that is evil. We need a rescuer. And so Matthew reminds us of how Israel was rescued from Egypt by comparing Jesus's return out of Egypt to Israel by comparing that rescue, he reminds us that we too need a rescue. So Jesus, in a way, is kind of like a second Israel, which gets a little kind of confusing. And the analogy only goes so far, but Jesus, just like Israel, ends up spending some time in the wilderness. If you remember Israel's rescue story, they don't do so hot after the whole like crossing the Red Sea thing. Like immediately as they're being rescued, they begin worshiping a golden calf while they're in the wilderness, not what God wanted for them, right? And then not long after that, as you know, they, they doubt God and they think like, he's saying he can take us into the promised land, but I don't think we can go into the promised land. So they lose faith in God. And because of that, they have to wander the wilderness for 40 years. Then while they're wandering in the wilderness, they start complaining about the way God is providing for them. The Bible tells us their shoes never wore out, that they were never hungry or thirsty. God continued to feed them with manna and things like that. And they're like, yeah, but I don't like manna. Israel does not do well in their rescue mission. But when we look at Jesus, Jesus does what Israel could not do. We see Jesus spends time in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit moves him out into the wilderness where we're told he was tempted by Satan. And yet Jesus never failed in any of these temptations. And he was tempted in very similar ways that Israel was tempted when they were in the wilderness. He was tempted to eat food, to turn rocks into bread. But he said, no, 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 God is the one that provides for me. He's tempted to bow to Satan as Israel had bowed to the golden calf, but he refuses to do that. He's tempted to doubt God and his plan, just like Israel doubted they could enter the promised land. But again, he refuses to do that. So Israel as the second or Jesus as the second Israel comes in and he does everything Israel couldn't do. He remains faithful to God. And Matthew, by bringing up this little phrase, reminds us of all of that and shows us not only is Jesus God's son, not only is he God's loved son, but he is the one that is gonna come to rescue us who so desperately need 
rescuing because he can do the things we can't do for ourselves. Because just like Israel, we often go astray, right? We often begin worshiping other things. We often disobey God. We find that we can't rescue ourselves. Now, when it comes to me and my sin, there's nothing I can do to forgive myself of my own sin. And as hard as I try, as hard as you try, we keep falling into sin. We need a rescuer that is greater than us. So that's kind of the, the first level that we're reminded of, that we're to think of as we read this little prophecy from Matthew of how, like Israel, he called his son out, called his son out of Egypt. We also are, are expert readers, right, which is us, right, like are really skilled Bible readers. That's us this morning. We're the Bible scholars this morning. You guys have probably already caught this. When we hear this prophecy, we think of Hosea, right? That's where this verse comes from, Hosea 11, chapter 1. So you've probably also not just been thinking about that Egypt story, but you've started remembering back to the story of Hosea, who was one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And Hosea lived in the time when the kingdom of Israel was split into the north and the south. And he was kind of in the southern part of the kingdom. And he prophesied to the southerners saying they needed to obey God because what happened to the northern part of Israel is another enemy army, the Assyrians had come in and marched them out of their territory. The northern country of Israel had been sacked because of their disobedience to God. And so Hosea is prophesying, he's prophesying, he's working as a messenger for God during this time. And God would often call his prophets to do these like elaborate public kind of like demonstrations or, or public theater, like these sort of stunts to get people's attention and then tell them what it means and what God is trying to communicate to them. And, and so these prophets would often do weird things like uh, Jeremiah had to go around with a wooden yoke on his neck for a long time. And everybody was like, what is that guy doing? He's like, this represents the burden that you bear. And then we had Ezekiel. Ezekiel had to like chop off his hair and then go burn it. And people were like, why are you burning your hair and like throwing it everywhere? He'd be like, this is because God is gonna scatter you to the wind just like my hair. Isaiah had to go around naked for a time, uh, which is a weird one too. Like he did that. Uh, but out of all these weird things the prophets had to do that God often called his prophets to do to sort of demonstrate his word and get people's attention, I think Hosea had it the hardest. Because Hosea is called to marry a prostitute. And that's not even the worst part. Her name was Gomer. I mean, can you imagine like introducing your wife? You're like, this is my wife, Gomer. And they're like, oh, is that a family name? No, like it's on purpose. Hosea is called to marry a prostitute. And the relation goes about the way that you would expect. He, he has children with her, but then eventually Gomer ends up with another man. Because as the Bible describes her, she's a promiscuous woman. So Hosea 3, chapter 1, it says this, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, which is weird, like, but there's a lot of layers there. It's kind of like an aphrodisiac in a way they would worship, you know, gods of fertility. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, and a homer of lethech of barley. I don't know what that last measurement is. I did my best. But Hosea has to go and buy back his own wife from another man. This is the story of Hosea. And this is why I was like, I don't think I want to do this prophecy for Christmas. Like this, again, is not the Christmas story we want to focus on. 
of a man trying to buy back his wife who is a prostitute. But the analogy is very poignant because God is setting up Hosea to show the way that he has gone after Israel. That even though Israel disobeyed him, even though they lost faith in him in the wilderness, even though they built other idols, not just in the wilderness, but throughout their history, even though they had turned their backs on God, they had left God, even though they should have been in a loving relationship with God, they left him. And they'd started worshiping other gods in the same way that Gomer left Hosea. And yet Hosea doesn't just leave her. He doesn't turn her back on her and say, well, that's it. Like I'm done with this. Hosea goes after her in the same way that God went after Israel. And time after time, he redeemed Israel and brought Israel back, even after they were taken from their land and punished by enemy armies coming in and exiling them, he brings them back and lets them build a new temple. God continues to love Israel, even though Israel has ran from God. And so as we think about this prophecy of Jesus, coming out of Egypt, we're reminded not just that God is on a, a mission of rescue, but that God is on a mission of redemption. That you and I, just like Israel, you and I, just like Gomer, all we have gone astray. And we continue to sin. We continue to turn our backs on God and give our love and attention to other idols. And yet God has not stopped pursuing us. And we see that in the story of Christmas, we see that in the love, in the baby Jesus, in the boy Jesus, the fact that God himself came to our earth to rescue us and to redeem us. So when God, when Matthew references this little prophecy, he's showing us that we have a rescuer and we have a shot at redemption. So we have to ask the question, why? And the only answer is love. Why would God rescue us? Because he loves us. Why would God redeem you even though you don't deserve it? Because he loves you. And so I think we'd be amiss to get through a morning like this where we're talking about love and we're talking about Christmas and God's rescue and his redemption and not give you a chance to respond to that and realize like, man, I need that rescue in my life. My life is dark. I have evil in my life. I need to be set free from the slavery of sin and death. If you have never taken the steps to give your life to Jesus, to become a Christian, to follow him, and you'd like to do that this morning, our prayer room is a great place to start. Or if you came to church with somebody this morning, we would love for you to talk to that person and say like, hey, I'd like to know more about how I could be rescued from my darkness, of how I could be redeemed. I'd like to know more of how I could get the love of a savior. It's so simple. I'd encourage you to talk to someone this morning about that. It's all about just realizing that Jesus is our redeemer, realizing that we have a problem of sin and we need that problem to be fixed and it can only be fixed through Jesus. And so we confess our sins to him. We give up our sins to him. We give up our life to him and say, now my life is about you because you're the one who has loved me like no other. And that's what it means to begin following Jesus. And so please, this morning, if it's a first time for you or you've heard these things before, but maybe you're just feeling that tug of your heart, don't leave here without talking to somebody about what it means to really follow Jesus. You have been rescued. You have been redeemed. But for the rest of us, that's not just where it stops. 
We have a rescuer, we have a redeemer, we have this example of love to live by. In fact, John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16. I don't know, I might've put John 3, 16 on the screen, I don't remember. 1 John 3, 16, we always think of John 3, 16, but 1 John 3, 16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. How do we identify love? How when we're looking for love in our lives, does this person love me? Where, where can I find love? We identify it by Jesus. This is how we know what love is, that he laid his life down for us, that he came into our world and then he died on a cross so that we could have life in him. But that's not where it stops. The verse continues and says, this is how we know love, that he laid his life down for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We have been rescued, we have been redeemed. And so what that means for us is now we are on a mission to join the rescue, to join in the redemption of other people. Now we become rescuers and redeemers. We become agents of Christ, helping people see Jesus, helping people see that they can be rescued, that their lives can be redeemed. Because he loved us, we also love them. And we love others by showing them the light and the love of Jesus. Earlier, I talked about my favorite depiction of Santa being in the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and maybe the reason why I love that so much is because Father Christmas and the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, like after he appears to the Pevensey kids, he does what Santa does best and gives them gifts. And so he reaches into his big red bag and he starts handing them out gifts, but he doesn't give them like, you know, like electronics. He's not giving them iPads and tablets or toy boats or whatever toys kids are getting these days. He gives them weapons, which I think is awesome, right? Like he gives Peter this huge sword and then he gives Susan bow, a bow and arrows. And he gives Lucy this little, like, this little bottle that'll help heal people, but also a dagger. And it's obvious what he's communicating to them. That, hey, if you're joining in with Aslan, you're joining in a fight. He is fighting for you. He rescued you. And now you are a part of his great rescue mission. They're handed weapons because if they're gonna be with Aslan, they're going to be fighting. And so we who have been rescued and redeemed, we join the fight that God started with Jesus. We join the fight against the spiritual forces of evil so that light can continue to flood our world, so that more people can be released from the slavery of sin and darkness and death. We join into the fight because Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we lay down our lives so that others can be rescued and redeemed. And we see all of this laid out for us on the communion tables this morning. Around the room, you're gonna see little cups and in the cup is a wafer and some juice. And this of course represents how Jesus laid down his life for us, how we were rescued, that the body of Jesus was broken and his blood poured out. Because Hosea bought back his wife with some silver and some barley, but God bought back you with the life of his son. It was a way higher cost, a way more precious payment. And so you have been bought back, you've been redeemed with the blood of Jesus. And we remember that this morning as we go to the communion tables. So we invite you, if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, to remember that you've been rescued, to remember that you have been redeemed. Then also on the tables around the room, you're gonna see our paper lanterns. 
These are lanterns that we're gonna get to light and send up in the sky on Christmas Eve as kind of a representation of Jesus's light entering and invading our world. And this morning, you're gonna see the word love is written on those. And I'd invite you as you grab your communion cup to take some time and reflect on how Jesus has loved you and how you can love others. And write on those lanterns, it can be short, it doesn't have to be long, maybe a one word of how you've seen Jesus love you. Maybe it's through your forgiveness, maybe it's the family he gave you, maybe it's the way he redeemed you. But then also write how or who you can love. Write the name of someone you know needs rescue and redemption. Or maybe even just put their initials if you don't want them to like see it and know that. Write a place where maybe you need to show more love, where you know it is dark here and I'm on a rescue mission for Jesus in this place. How have you been loved and how will you love? So as we go to communion and we reflect on Jesus' sacrifice, let us also reflect, not just on the fact that we have been loved, but now we're called to love. Not only have we been rescued and redeemed, but now we're part of a great rescue mission, working for the redemption of others. Let me pray for us and then you're invited to these tables. God, I pray this season that we would see your love in a different light. I pray this season that we would see the Christmas story not just as a childish story about a baby and a manger and angels, but that we'd see it for the story that it is, the great rescue story. They would see it as you, our God, fighting for us against the forces of evil so that we could be rescued and redeemed. But let us, God, let us know that the Christmas story doesn't end there, that the story of Jesus doesn't end with our rescue and our redemption, but now we are called to join in on his fight, to join in fighting for the rescue and redemption of others. And we do that by showing your love and your light to those around us. And so as we write some names of people that need to feel your love, God, we pray, we pray that they'd feel it. We pray that you would use us as your agents to invade their darkness and bring your light and your life to them. So God, we thank you for your rescue and redemption and we pray that you, you would use us on your rescue mission. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can move to communion.